Well, today I want to begin a 12-week series of teachings from some neglected books in the Old Testament. And to introduce you to that series, I'm going to direct your attentions to the screen once again because we taped the introduction, and then I'll be back with the very first installment of the series. This week, Pastor Rock launches a 12-week series on the writings of 12 men, commonly known as the Minor Prophets. Don't be fooled by the description. When compared to the so-called Major Prophets, their writings are minor only in length, not importance. God can say a lot in a few words. All the prophets spoke for God with a message from God. Though set in time, their words are timeless because they aren't primarily about culture. Scripture says they bear witness to Jesus. Their words reveal his heart and his agenda. He's the fulfillment of everything they anticipated. That explains why Jesus himself said he didn't come to abolish the prophets, but to fulfill them. And that fulfillment involves us. God used these unique men to proclaim his heart and truth, denounce human sin and misplaced trust, and sometimes predict the future, both near and far off. At times, he used their lives as mini-dramas meant to convey his truth. Despite popular misconceptions, the prophets weren't sour-faced pessimists. They were incurable optimists, even in the darkest times. Their unshakable faith in God helped them see things as they really are, but it also helped them see God for who he really is. What we believe about God shapes everything we do. But it's equally true that what we believe about culture shapes everything we do. That's why navigating the intersection of faith and culture is always challenging and sometimes dangerous. And that's where the prophets can help us. Their words navigated the intersection of the timeless and time. That's why we're calling our study Jesus at the Intersection. And we begin today with the prophet Hosea. More than his words, his life story gives us a graphic picture of the heart of God and the heart of humanity. To launch us into that study, I want to read the words of Hosea from the 14th chapter and the 9th verse of the book that bears his name. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the righteous will walk in them, but transgressors will stumble in them. And based on those words from Hosea, I'm entitling this teaching, Walk or Stumble. It's a fundamental choice that confronts us all. Let's look to the Lord together in prayer. Father, the prophet Hosea wrote as the Holy Spirit inspired him. I am thankful that that same Holy Spirit is here in this room this moment. 
And I pray that that same spirit would inspire my teaching from the words of the prophet, that they would be accurate to all that you meant to convey. And I pray that your spirit would enable each of us to hear your voice speaking to us where we are with what we have at this moment in our lives. I pray that Jesus, who is the ultimate message of all the prophets, would be honored in this place, in this teaching. And we pray it for his glory and in his name. Amen and amen. And as we study God's word together this morning, may the Lord be with you. You've often heard it said, a picture is worth a thousand words. But I would caution that without words, a picture can easily be misleading. That was certainly the case with the picture that was the life of Hosea the prophet. As that picture unfolded before Hosea's contemporaries, he appeared to be a fool, a naive man who invited unnecessary pain and embarrassment into his life because of his refusal to accept reality. But the words that God added to the picture say something far different. They tell us that it was Hosea's audience, his contemporaries in Israel, who were the fools. They were the naive who were inviting pain and embarrassment into their life because of their refusal to accept reality. Hosea was no fool. He was a discerning and devoted servant of God, a man willing to accept incredible personal pain in an effort to warn his people of impending judgment and to point them towards God's incredibly loving heart. So in short, Hosea didn't suffer because he was a fool. He suffered because he was faithful. He willingly accepted personal anguish as part of his divine assignment. And even though this will not be the main point of my teaching today, let me remind you that when you say, Lord, I want to serve you for the benefit of other people, there will be times when pain, Personal pain will be your preparation for that assignment because your pain will become your pulpit out of which you will impact another life. And if you're going to follow Jesus like Hosea, you have to be willing to accept those tough assignments. Now, in many ways, Hosea's story differs little from similar stories that unfold in our city every day. After all, broken lives broken vows, broken marriages, broken hearts are hardly new and they're never in short supply. But in other ways, Hosea's story is so unique, it almost stands alone. Almost, and I'll explain why I use that word as we close the teaching. Hosea's story is set in the ancient city of Samaria. It was the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. As one of God's younger prophets, Hosea had been given the task of opening the eyes and the hearts of a, of a nation that was in rebellion against God. Israel was a hot mess. They had gone bad. And the path that led them to that place was a gradual path. 
Their deterioration didn't happen overnight. And it reminds us that sin starts small, and then it grows. It almost always starts small and inconspicuous, but it ultimately, like cancer, grows. So the people of Israel didn't awaken one day and say, well, let's vote on whether we want to follow God or reject him, and then overwhelmingly vote to reject him. No, they would have said, oh, we are, we're still following God. Their decline began when they just dropped God a few spots in their priority list. You see, their lives were full, and they were very busy, and they had lots of important things to do, and God's demands for worship were rather inconvenient. You might say, in their case, the spirit was willing, but the flesh needed the weak end. And I stress that because we're watching a similar dynamic unfold in our culture, in the American church. And, and I understand competition on Sunday morning is fierce, and especially for young families. Uh, that was the case when Karen and I were raising younger children. My, my son was on an elite soccer traveling squad in the North Hills, playing all around the country, but it was starting to take him away from Sunday worship. And one of the proudest days in my life was the day my son came to me and said, Dad, is it all right if I quit soccer so I don't have to miss church so much? He obviously got his wisdom from his mother. But we're seeing that unfold, and I, I just want to remind you that neglecting the worship of God and the assembly of God's people is very dangerous for a host of reasons, but I just want to mention two. First of all, our hearts follow our actions. Jesus made that clear when he said, wherever you put your treasure, that's where your heart will go. And because of that, if you live as if other pursuits are more important than God, they will eventually become more important than God, to you and to your children. Parents, if you spend 18 years teaching your children that Jesus always comes second, don't be surprised when he comes second in their life at age 20. Second, when attention to God decreases, the likelihood of idolatry increases. Because when we neglect worship in the assembly, we lose sight of God's power, God's faithfulness. And then when problems arise in life, and they always do, because we've lost sight of God's power and faithfulness, we tend to put our trust in inferior sources of help and support. And when you trust the inferior rather than God, that's idolatry. And idolatry was flourishing in Israel. Because as God fades in importance, things inferior to God become more important. As confidence in God eroded in that culture, they placed their hopes in military alliances with pagan nations. And as they made alliances with pagan nations, they embraced 
pagan idols until eventually the people of the living God were worshiping the image of a golden calf that they fashioned with their own hands. And they convinced themselves that they were still worshiping God. They were just worshiping in a new, relevant way, an alternative way of worshiping the same God. But it wasn't the same worship, and it wasn't the same God. One of the most hideous lies that Satan tells to the human race is that everybody worships the same God. You cannot hold on to that lie if you've read the Bible even one time. God identifies a whole host of false competitors. And he didn't say through Hosea, I realize you're just worshiping me differently. No, he said you're worshiping idols and you have forsaken me in Entirely. But again, they convinced themselves they were still tight with God. And you see what was happening? Their agenda had become one of power and wealth. And the living God can be really inconvenient when that's your agenda. <laughs> so they crafted a God of their own making who wouldn't say anything about their agenda, who would remain silent about their agenda. See, we make idols that fit our agendas. And then to make matters worse, they literally offered their children as sacrifices to that golden calf. Offered their children. Nothing new under the sun. Aren't we still doing that today? We couch it in terms of choice. But the choice is we have chosen the idolatry of wealth and convenience over the love of humanity. Yes, our choices do reflect in our behavior. As a result of this, when the spiritual went bad, everything else followed suit. On the political front, it was like an unfolding episode of scandal, murder, political coups, anarchy. The nation was a hot mess. And as all that was unfolding, God kept patiently, lovingly appealing to that people to no avail. So Israel was about to learn that those who refuse God's grace choose God's judgment. And here's why. God's judgment is simply his releasing the consequence of our choices. People think of God's judgment as God stepping into an otherwise nice life and making it miserable. No, no, a thousand times no. God's judgment is when he says, you've been making bad choices. Unbeknownst to you, I've been protecting you from those bad choices, but I can't protect you forever. I will acknowledge your prayer that your will be done. It's just God releasing our consequences. And so Hosea had to tell them that soon the ruthless nation of Assyria with whom they had made a pact was going to sweep across their nation, crush them, and send them into exile. They had refused to walk in God's truth, so they were going to stumble over it. And Hosea was to make that clear. How would you like to have that assignment? Predictably, Hosea's message was met with calloused indifference and counter-argument. The people quickly went to social media and suggested Hosea's God must 
be the vengeful sort, not the God we know. But Hosea reminded them that God's ultimatums are proof of his love. They indicate he cares. God wanted them to see what they were doing to themselves, how they were degrading themselves and destroying themselves and dehumanizing themselves. But instead of listening, they blamed God. They said, if God is really a God of love, how often do we hear that? By people who don't know God or love, either one but feel competent to speak about both. If God is really a God of love, why does he let things get in such a mess? As if God made the mess. If God is a God of love, how could he send those ruthless Assyrians down upon our land? Yet always blame it on God's doorstep. See, the oldest sport known to man is passing the buck. God came to Adam, Adam said, that woman you gave me. <laughs> God came to the woman, she said, that serpent you created. God went to the serpent and he didn't have a leg to stand on. <laughs> I know that's bad, but like I said, I can resist anything but temptation. <laughs> well, at that point when they wouldn't listen, God instructed this young prophet to do something really bizarre in our understanding. Now, God often called his prophets to do unusual things, things like preach naked. I'm glad he doesn't call us to do that anymore. <laughs> and trust me, so are you. <laughs> He'd call them to dress in sackcloth. He'd call them to wear a yoke. And I think you can understand it was meant as spiritual theater. It was a living drama that was meant to get the attention of a populace that were numb to the spoken word of God. And if you resist God long enough, you become numb to his spoken word. He can be shouting and you don't even hear him. So in Hosea's case, God instructed him to marry a prostitute. Because his life was going to become a living dramatization of the way that Israel was committing spiritual adultery and prostituting herself with foreign idols and foreign nations. And his life was also going to illustrate how a loving God was suffering as a result of their choice. Now, if that measure seems drastic, let me remind you, ultimately, it isn't God who orders drastic measures, it's us. We make them necessary when we ignore his repeated, patient, loving appeals. And if God's call to a prophet to marry a hooker seems bizarre, let me suggest that it's idolatry that's truly bizarre. Because what could be more bizarre than betraying the stubborn love of a loving God who gives you the breath of life so that you can follow inanimate objects that you made with your own hands? That's bizarre. Now, it's not clear how Hosea's painful ordeal began. Some people believe God literally said, Hosea, I want you to marry a prostitute. Others believe that God led Hosea to marry Gomer, that was the woman's name, knowing that she would subsequently become a prostitute. So that when Hosea later said, God called me to marry a prostitute, he was saying that in hindsight. Now, you and I do similar things. We sometimes look back and realize, oh, God was positioning me for something, even though he didn't tell me. 
And then we say things like, God led me to that place, even though we weren't conscious of it at the time. Where do I fall in that? I'm inclined to think he knew up front. And here's why. Hosea was going to play the part of God, his wife the part of Israel. And when God joined in covenant with the people of Israel, he did so with his eyes wide open. He knew they would ultimately prove unfaithful to him. He was never taken off guard, never taken by surprise, and I don't think Hosea was either. But that didn't make it any less painful because Hosea actually loved her. He loved her. He loved a woman who became his wife knowing she was going to betray him in prostitution. So it says something about real love, doesn't it? Versus a romantic flush. Well, as you can well imagine, the years that followed were painful for God's prophet. How many sleepless nights did he spend wondering where she at and when she coming home? In his mind, he imagined her with other men. When he asked her where she was, his inquiries were met with hostility, resentment, and denials, and lame excuses. They had a child, but children don't save marriages. They had a second and a third, and the second and the third weren't his, and he knew it. He didn't know who the daddies were. But God instructed him to name all three of his children after places and coming events in the life of the nation that would speak of the perilous situation they were in. So whenever Hosea went out to call his kids home from the ball field, he was shouting to everybody within listening distance about Israel's sin and their coming judgment. Eventually, Gomer left him. She returned to the streets that in actuality she had never really left. And I suspect that those who resented Hosea had a field day. Can't you hear them? So the dude who talking to us about our sin and how we need to get right with God, <laughs> dude can't even keep his own home together. Loser. Because you know how people are. You are one. And the people that loved God and loved Hosea probably said, he's probably better off. I feel relief for him. But even though Gomer had left his home, even though she had betrayed him, she hadn't left his heart. He still loved her. Just as Israel thought they had emancipated themselves from God, we're free of his restrictions, Gomer must have thought she was free, but the path to freedom quickly proved to be a dead end. She ended up being passed from man to man to man, all of them happy to bed her, none of them willing to support her. And you can watch that unfold in this neighborhood every day. Eventually, with no man to support her, she ended up destitute, and she ended up literally on the auction block at the local slave market where she would have been stripped naked and sold to the highest bidder like a piece of meat. And as she stood before that leering crowd who knew her light and felt she's getting what she deserves, she heard one low bid because she was damaged goods, and another low bid and it just rubs salt in the wound. 
And then she heard a voice she recognized. The voice of her betrayed husband. And he bid higher than anybody else. And when they came back, he bid higher again. And they came back and he bid higher again. And he bought her. And he told her he still loved her. And he said, I've got to bring you back home. But it's got to be a different day. No more of the old life. I'm setting a new life in front of you. If you know prophetic scripture, you know that Gomer on the auction block, about to be sold into slavery, was a picture of what was going to happen to Israel and what historically did happen to Israel. They were conquered, taken into captivity, and we refer to the ten lost tribes of Israel because they basically disappeared from history, but they are still known to God. In fact, you may not realize it, but God has placed some genetic markers within the Jewish people so that when he regathers them, he'll know exactly where they are. <coughs> they would not be restored in the near future. In fact, they still haven't been restored. We know their restoration will come at the second coming of Christ and the events that lead up to it. They're still waiting that day. But for Gomer, there was a new life in front of her. Now, did Hosea's love and kindness make sense a thousand times? No. But you see, Hosea was playing the part of God. And God's love doesn't act according to logic. It acts according to his nature. And God's nature is love. John would later write, God is love. He didn't say God endorses love. God practices love. God's a really loving dude. He said God is love. He is the very definition of love, the embodiment of love. He can't help himself but love. Now earlier I suggested that Hosea's story was almost unique. And I stress the almost because now I hope you see Hosea's story is really God's story and more specifically Jesus' story. In Jesus' story, you and I play the part of Gomer. We all start life estranged from God. We all start life in rebellion to God. We all start life following things other than God, things inferior to God. And as we do, we lose ourselves. We lose ourselves in the illusion of freedom. We sell ourselves on the cheap to idols that will make promises they can never keep, that will use us that will fail to support us and will eventually kick us to the curb like yesterday's garbage. But thankfully, when we were on the auction block, we heard the voice of our Hosea, the Lord Jesus, who offered his own life that he might redeem us because it would take nothing less than his life. He outbid, literally, the devil for your life and for mine. And as Hosea endured the pain of betrayal and the shame of his wife out prostituting herself on the streets, Jesus embraced the shame of being crucified naked publicly. And he embraced the pain of the cross, dying like a common criminal, so that he could buy us back and say, but you're not going back to the old life. 
I didn't come to give you prostitution with medical care. I didn't come so that you could be a hooker with a house. I came to give you a new life. The old life has to end, but I've made it possible for you to have a new one. I've made it possible for you to walk rather than stumble. What does this say about Jesus at the intersection? When Jesus stands at the intersection of culture and faith, culture will lie through its teeth to you. Every day this culture makes promises it cannot keep. It tells you buy this, wear this, look like this, hang with these folks, and you'll be free and you'll be happy, and it's all a lie. And if you've been trying that, let me ask, how's that working for you? But when Jesus stands at that intersection, he doesn't spin. He tells the truth. He won't say, you're a really great person. You just need a little life coaching. He'll tell you the truth. You're a hot mess. You're an addict to sin, and you can't set yourself free. And you're living far below what was intended for you. And you can't do a blessed thing about it. But I can. And I want to. But it'll only happen if you let me. Jesus won't lie to us about sin. A savior who lies about sin is like a doctor who lies about disease. What good is he? I go to a physician, I want him to tell me what I've got. I want him to name it. I don't want him to say, well, obviously something's wrong with you, but we don't know what it is. Because if that's all he's got, how do you treat we don't know what it is? Churches that refuse to speak about sin and they're growing in number are like doctors who refuse to diagnose people's disease. Where's that lead them? Jesus will speak truth, brutal truth. You are a slave to your own sin. But, but, but. I've already paid the price. I love you. Despite that, let me set you free and give you a future. That's why I said Hosea's story is almost unique. Jesus is really unique. Would you bow your heads with me? If you've accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you know you're off the auction block and you know you've been set free. But if you're still on that auction block, selling yourself to the last bit of culture so that you can be used yet again, I want to ask, how's that working for you? And I want to declare to you the gospel according to Hosea, that there is a Savior who willingly embraced pain as his assignment because he loves you and wants better for you. Why would you run from a God like that? And if you've been running and you want to stop and turn and accept the life he is offering you, will you in the quietness of your heart simply pray along these lines, Lord Jesus, I confess I've been living in rebellion against you. I didn't call it that, but that's what it's been. I want better. And as amazing as it sounds, I believe 
you're ready to give me better if I'll submit my life to you. So I confess Jesus as my Lord and take him as my Savior, believing he died for me and rose again that I might live. Change my heart. Grant me that new birth. And I will follow you all the days of my life as you give me the grace. Before we close, while heads are still bowed, if you prayed today, I'd like to ask you to raise your hand to simply acknowledge that. I'm not going to call on you. I'm not going to do anything else. I just simply want to know if God spoke to you and you responded to him. If so, would you please just raise your hand for just a moment. Thank you, sir. God bless you. Thank you, sir. God bless you, ma'am, sir, ma'am. Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else? I gave my heart to Hosea today knowing he loves me. If you're fighting, and I did for 20 years, this is a fight you want to lose. Because when you lose, you win. Gracious Heavenly Father, we're thankful that in our hot mess, you gave a holy Messiah who was willing to embrace unspeakable pain and betrayal so that we could be set free. That's not a minor message. <laughs> That's a major message. And we cannot help but praise you. For these who raise their hand, Lord, seal to their heart the life-transforming decision they made. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.